0: So this was a model from 1982 with startlingly accurate projections into the present day. That's correct. The orange line shows the actual level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through this year. Mm -hmm. And the blue line shows the actual average temperature change. So in 1982, Exxon accurately... 1982, seven years before I was even born, Exxon accurately predicted that by this year, 2019... The Earth would hit a carbon dioxide concentration of 415 parts per million and a temperature increase of one degree Celsius. Dr. Hoffert, is that correct? We were excellent scientists. <laughs> yes, you were. Yes, you were.
1: That's Marty Hoffert, probably my favorite of all the old Exxon guys, and he's totally trying to flirt with AOC. <laughs>
2: So this is our executive producer, or as we like to call her, the fairy pod mother, Amy Westervelt. Back in episode three, we ended with a question. Why did acting on climate get left to AOC's generation when people have known this was a problem for decades? And that's kind of Amy's obsession. She digs into it from every angle on her podcast, Drilled, which is a true crime podcast about climate change. So, Amy, can you tell me who Marty Hoford is and what's going on in this hearing?
1: Yeah, for sure. Marty was a consultant for Exxon. He was a scientist who was doing research at NYU and started consulting with Exxon on climate change and CO2 emissions from the early 80s through to the mid 90s. When, of course, Exxon kind of shifted away from doing the kind of research that Marty was involved in. So this particular hearing that we're listening to was put together in 2019. The idea was to look at ways that companies like Exxon had suppressed information about climate change. And that's why Marty was there.
0: Uh, Dr. Hoffert, you have previously said that Exxon's historic denial was immoral and greatly set back efforts to address climate change. That's correct. Yes? Yes. It is correct that I said that. I have good reason to say it.
1: And it had been going on for two hours by the point that AOC came in and everyone was like whispering and texting up until then, like, where is she? Where's AOC? Is she going to show? She said she was going to be here. And then we found out later that she was actually down the hall grilling Mark Zuckerberg about Facebook and disinformation. So it was pretty funny.
2: Of course. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So she comes in at some point and she goes right into these memos and graphs where Exxon scientists were talking about climate and she's asking questions and the scientists are doing what they do, which is trying to get into the weeds. And AOC keeps being like, "Okay, but briefly, though, Mr. Hofer, can you please just tell me? (laughs) And she just sums it up in this one line, like seven years before I was even born you guys predicted this, and now it's happened exactly like you said, and then, you know, Marty sort of plays along. Mm -hmm. It's this one minute that just encapsulates this entire part of the story with this young person being like, what the hell, you guys knew? And it gets at what was known and why nothing happened and why it might be different now.
0: And I, I presume they knew what some of the consequences of that one degree Celsius change would be. Some of them, not all.
2: Absolutely. I would like to have an opportunity to discuss that if someone asks me. That story on this episode of Generation Green New Deal. I'm your host, Sam Eilertsen, and this week, Amy Westervelt is co-piloting with me. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Generation Green New Deal. So, Amy, you've been covering climate science and politics for quite a while. I'd love it if you could maybe start off by describing the climate movement or maybe I should say the environmental movement um, back when climate emerged as a political issue in the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. There's there really was no dedicated movement trying to stop climate change back then. There was the environmental movement and then it had a few branches. So you'd have what I would call the big green groups, so like Sierra Club and NRDC, which tended to be run and supported by mostly white liberals from this sort of coastal elite bubble. They worked on various issues, conservation, pollution, The plastic thing started to become a big issue in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s. But overall, their messaging really tended to be about saving trees and protecting endangered species. Really, really into charismatic megafauna. Like (laughs) (laughs) polar bears, yes. Uh, But you hardly ever saw people.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the first like activist thing I ever did was uh, in first grade, I wrote a Sierra Club postcard to President Clinton about protecting the rainforest.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And these these groups, I mean, they did do important work. I, you know, I care about saving the whales. uh, But they were also really willing to work with corporations and to kind of play this inside game in Washington. They were not doing things like staging sit-ins at the office of the Speaker of the House. And then even when you had some more radical actions from folks like Greenpeace, you know, they would they would do things sometimes like disrupt shareholder meetings or like hang banners from places. But they had been pretty successfully branded as just these tree-hugging, hippie, you know, radical eco-terrorists. So <laughs> they weren't exactly like winning over the public or politicians. hmm and then you kind of had the beginnings of the environmental justice movement focused on stopping pollution in what we now call frontline communities, which were usually black and brown communities that are endangered by pollution. But those groups did not have as much of a national profile or access to power or funding because mm-hmm. systemic racism.
2: Right. And climate change wasn't necessarily the number one priority for any of these groups. Right. Right.
1: It was really only the number one priority for the scientists who were studying it and then a handful of writers and activists who were trying to communicate that but not having great luck in breaking through.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I, I interviewed one of those people last year, um, Bill McKibben. So he wrote one of the first books about it, which was called The End of Nature, um, back in 1989, which was the year that both AOC and I were born.
1: Wow, I can't believe it was that long ago.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <Wow. laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We and we interviewed him him. we drove out to um, his house in very rural upstate New York you lose cell service about an hour and a half out from, from actually getting there and it's kind of a log <laughs> cabin style thing um, and so you can hear the crickets in the background um, on the recording because we were on the porch
1: <laughs> Oh god, that's classic Bill
3: My mistake, and the mistake of a lot of people maybe, was assuming that this debate was going to be carried on in good faith. The theory being that uh, that we would win the argument and then The powers that be would act. At a certain point, though, it became clear that we'd won the argument. We'd won the argument, but as it turned out, we were losing the fight because the fight wasn't about data and reason. The fight was what fights are always about, money and power.
1: That last bit from Bill McKibben is so true. And I think every older person in climate has had this moment where they've realized this that, like, these companies made a concerted effort to shape what people even knew, never mind, you know, policy, which is like three steps down the road from knowing something.
2: Yeah. And of course, we now know, thanks to people like Marty Hovert coming forward um, and work that reporters like you have done. Um, that, yeah, these companies were doing cutting-edge climate science and knew more or less what was coming by the late 1970s.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the late 70s, there are all these memos from Exxon scientists, you know, really warning in fairly stark terms that this is going to be catastrophic.
2: Yeah, so just to quickly sketch out the timeline here, um, scientists started talking about the possibility that coal emissions could cause global warming as early as the 1800s. People started to seriously sound alarms um, by the 60s and 70s. I found a news report about it from the year 1970. Pollution and overpollution, unless checked, could so warm the Earth in 200 years
4: as to create a greenhouse effect, melting the Arctic ice cap and flooding vast areas of the world.
2: And so in 1988, you had NASA scientist James Hansen testify before Congress, and this was the first big wake-up call for a lot of people. The greenhouse effect has been detected, and it is changing our climate now. That same year, George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., the Republican candidate for president, pledged to do something about it.
3: Some say these problems are too big, that it's impossible for an individual or even a nation as great as ours to solve the problem of global warming or the loss of forests or the deterioration of our oceans? My response is simple. It can be done and we must do it.
1: A depressing thing that I think about sometimes is that in 1991, 92, we had the same polling numbers that we have now on climate Mm -hmm. in terms of how many people were taking it seriously and thought we should act. And then...
3: Within a year or two, the fossil fuel industry had decided that this was a mortal threat to their existence and they began building this architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that then kept us locked for three decades in a completely sterile
2: debate about whether or not global warming was real here's former exxon scientist marty hoford again
3: they they started to realize that this can actually affect our business. I was very naive. I thought that if they realized that climate change was real, they would start making big investments in renewable
1: energy. Woof. Yeah. So by 1996, here's Exxon CEO Lee Raymond giving a speech to the American Petroleum Institute emphasizing that really the jury is still out on climate. Scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities
3: affect the global climate. Everyone agrees that burning fossil fuels releases carbon dioxide, and that such concentrations in the atmosphere
2: are rising. But it's a long and dangerous leap to conclude that we should therefore cut fossil fuel use.
1: So they use denial and casting doubt to mislead the public, and then they bring their political influence and lobbying money to bear behind the scenes.
3: And right about that same time, in the mid-1990s, it became pretty clear that the fossil fuel industry behind the scenes was engaged in an all-out effort to sabotage any attempt to deal with this crisis. The Kyoto talks in Japan in the late 1990s were the first global attempt.
1: The final hours of the climate convention in Kyoto, Japan were frenetic, as negotiators went into overtime in their search for a deal.
3: I remember when the countries reached an agreement uh, and delegates were standing there applauding, I was standing next to a guy who was a lobbyist for the fossil fuel industry. And he just shook his head and said, well, I can't wait to get back to Washington where we've got this stuff under control. They had it so wired in Washington that the U.S. never took part in the Kyoto Protocol.
1: This tape really... Can I cuss on, on this podcast?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> you're our, <really> you're fucking... <laughs> our executive producer, so you're responsible okay. for putting the it explicit okay? label on. Is it allowed? <laughs> it. Uh, yeah.
1: this tape fucking kills me <laughs> because <laughs> I've I've read so many of the documents now about the strategy and how important it was to these guys to kill Kyoto. And it's really this moment where we lose the battle on climate in the 90s. And it was, it was not. All, but really mostly the handiwork of this group called the Global Climate Coalition.
2: Which sounds very green.
1: <laughs> I know. They were very good at this. So, this PR guy, his name is E. Bruce Harrison he pulled together basically any company that might have something to lose if CO2 was regulated. And he brought them together in a coalition and they just lobbied the shit out of everyone in Washington. And then there's this this whole ratification step that gets pushed off until George W. Bush gets elected. And of course, one of the first things he announces is that, hey, we're not ratifying this Kyoto thing. It's very, very reminiscent of like, Trump announcing immediately after election that he's pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) The idea of placing caps on CO2 does not make economic sense for America. And while I worry about emissions and we will work together to achieve efficiencies through new technologies, and I'm confident we can do that, I'm also worried about the fact that people may not be finding jobs in America.
2: Something I didn't really know, and I think that... Um, you and your colleague, Mary Hegler, really helped me wake up to is um, some of the more subtle PR tactics they've used, particularly more recently, as it's gotten harder and harder to just completely deny the existence of climate change, they mm-hmm. focused more and more on casting the blame on everybody else. So it's yeah. not our problem, it's your carbon footprint and how dare you call for political action if you like drive a car and use air travel and don't always recycle. Yeah. And that
1: story is so pervasive. It it was really it was created by the fossil fuel guys like BP invented the carbon calculator.
5: What size is your carbon footprint? Whatever it is,
0: the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number.
2: Yeah, and the media is really run with it, too. Every Earth Day, there are those, like, five ways to cut your carbon footprint stories.
5: To get this one sandwich, we've released 800 grams of CO2.
2: And often our failure to deal with climate change gets boiled down to human nature. Like, we're just too short-sighted and selfish as creatures to do anything about a big systemic global problem. And a lot of serious liberal commentators have said things to that effect. So Bill gave me his take on that. Humans, look... Look,
3: we're all short-sighted. We never, you know, very few of us get up in the morning saying, you know, how am I going to change so that the world will, you know, but that's not the issue here. I mean, nobody cares if you turn the switch on the wall and the power comes from a solar panel or a coal mine. The only people who care are people who own coal mines.
1: Right, yes. This is exactly right.
2: Yeah, and a report from the Climate Accountability Institute found that 100 companies are responsible for 70% of emissions since 1988. 100 companies, 70% of emissions.
1: Yeah, exactly. But we're all supposed to feel bad when we forget to turn the lights off.
2: Yeah, and I think a big part of why that story resonates um, and has been pretty pervasive even on the left is that we live in an era of the personal responsibility ethic, right? Like we're supposed to express our politics through the things we buy, through how we participate in the market, et cetera.
1: Yeah, baby, let's talk about neoliberalism.
2: Yeah, I hate hate that word. It's so wonky um, and and kind of confusing, but it's a big part of the story. Um, Like we said at the beginning of the show, Climate change became a political issue right in the late 80s, and that's the era of Ronald Reagan, deregulation, trickle-down economics, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It was when the free market was supposed to fix everything, the, the Gordon Gecko days. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. The person who really woke me up to this connection between the free market ethos and the climate crisis was writer Naomi Klein.
4: You know, I've said this before, but what has been so tragic about the timing of the climate crisis is it hit us collectively at the worst possible moment in human history. So the biggest problem that we've had in in rising to the challenge of climate change is the political and economic ideology that has dominated in the period that we have been talking about doing something and failing to do so.
1: She's awesome. Um. I like learned a lot from Naomi Klein too and I have this deep kind of long time obsession with American individualism as sort of the root of all evil. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's very much there from the second the puritans dock in America, but neoliberalism really takes that mantra of individual success and cranks it up like 10 notches.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you divide America's ideological history into eras, um, starting in the 1930s, you have a New Deal era. The House is burning down,
1: says the Republican floor leader. So give the president anything he needs to put out the fire. Through 100 historic days of a special session, every New Deal measure passes without question. The country demands bold, persistent experimentation, the president says. And the country gets it. That
2: era basically stretches right up to the election of Reagan in 1980. So yeah. from that point on, we've been living in the post Reagan or the neoliberal era.
1: Those decades after the New Deal sort of conditioned Americans to the idea that government spending was not terrible, that it could actually be good.
2: Exactly. So the New Deal and World War II pulled America out of the Great Depression, and they also created the American middle class as we know it. Um, Between World War II and the rise of Reagan, you had lots of ambitious government projects, lots of regulation on corporations, and very high taxes on the wealthy. Um, under both Democrat and Republican presidents. We built the federal highway system. We put a man on the moon. We created Medicare and Medicaid. We passed all the important environmental protection laws.
1: Even, you know, conservatives will kind of wax nostalgic about the good old days and like, you know, the quote-unquote traditional America of the 1950s, but that was in many ways enabled by government spending.
2: Mm -hmm. So then along comes Ronald Reagan. I think you all know that I've always felt the
3: nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the
2: government and I'm here to help
1: God the fucking 80s
2: yeah and unfortunately one of the big reasons that people started buying what Reagan was selling was racism Jim Crow laws mean segregation is still widespread even the new deal discriminates against African Americans whites get the pick of the jobs and a higher wage The New Deal helped create the American middle class, but it was specifically a white middle class.
5: You know, a big government gave white Americans a way out of the Depression and, um, you know, created white American home ownership by subsidizing the suburbs and creating uh, low and no interest loans. Uh, A big government gave white veterans a chance at uh, middle class life through the GI Bill and free college tuition.
2: That's Heather McGee, former president of the think tank Demos and a leading thinker on the role that race plays in our politics. So black people were excluded from many of the benefits of the New Deal and the GI Bill. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement forced the government to start letting black people reap the benefits of those government programs.
5: And it wasn't until big government stepped in to reorder the racial rules in our society that the sentiment among the majority of white people towards government changed. And it's like what happened in towns, not just in the South, but across the country, when public pools that used to be whites only were ordered to integrate. And instead of integrating them, white towns voted to drain their public swimming pools rather than let children of color swim too. And of course that meant that that public resource was lost for everyone.
2: Neoliberalism basically meant draining the public swimming pools, but on a society-wide scale.
5: President Ronald Reagan was really the person who took the Southern strategy of realigning white voters towards a conservative economic Republican Party national. And he was able to do that by casting government as the boogeyman. There was a sense that government could do nothing good. um, And a big part of that was because it was coddling criminal and lazy people of color, particularly black people. That was a big part of Reagan's ability to win over white America to what was essentially a conservative trickle-down agenda that wasn't going to benefit them financially. So when you have that confluence of suspicion of an activist government for racialized reasons, you then have a political party that's able to use that suspicion of an activist government to thwart progress on climate change.
1: Ugh, it's all so intentional and strategic. Of course, it wasn't just the Republicans, it's a both sides of the aisle problem. The center of the Democratic Party embraced neoliberalism too.
2: That's right, Reagan fundamentally realigned American politics. His election was the nail in the coffin for the New Deal era. Democrats like Bill Clinton embraced the ideology of the free market.
1: The era of big government is over. I very much remember those days, and you still hear people in the climate space taking a sort of be reasonable approach to acting on the problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, really, until the Green New Deal came along, policy ideas to deal with climate change, even the ideas from liberal politicians, were built around market incentives. The idea was that if you just make emissions more expensive, then the market will find a way to fix the problem. We need
3: to ultimately make clean renewable energy the profitable kind of energy. So I ask this Congress to send me legislation that places a market-based cap on carbon pollution and drives the production of more renewable energy in America.
2: The issue with that of course is who exactly is so excited about this idea of a special tax, right? Yeah. Like,
1: yeah, totally. It was it was just a bad idea. And it's funny, like, you'll still hear people talking about this now. In fact, actually, the people you hear talking about the most now are oil companies, because this is, like, the solution that Mm -hmm. they're now willing to accept. (laughs) (laughs) But... It was just bad, bad messaging. And that was kind of the case for years with the climate movement, just bad messaging across the board. Like at first, you could only talk about data and be very serious about science. And then it was finances and taxes and like these complex market mechanisms. Like who understands a stock market for pollution? Nobody, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> And then when they finally got to emotions, it was this like, no people, just charismatic megafauna, that's it, thank you. And all the right had to do was like, the hippies are gonna take your hamburgers. Like they just went straight for lizard brain emotion.
2: So between the denial campaigns of the fossil fuel industry and then liberal environmentalists saying that the free market could solve all this with some minor tax code changes, um, it's unsurprising that for most people, climate change wasn't really an urgent issue. And one of those people was actually Naomi Klein.
4: I was somebody who was very um, active on human rights, economic justice, and I felt like climate change was like, and one issue that other people were dealing with. Like, it seemed more abstract than the economic and and human rights issues that I was focused on.
2: So then she got a wake-up call in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina happened.
1: Sunday morning
3: in New Orleans, the National Weather Service issued a bulletin predicting a hurricane along the Gulf Coast of what it called unprecedented strength. The area will be uninhabitable for weeks, the bulletin predicted. Human suffering, incredible by modern standards.
4: What happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina is that um, the that devastating um, quote-unquote natural disaster, I say quote-unquote because every every weather event of that kind is now being supercharged by climate change, um, it was exploited to intensify economic and racial inequality Um, immediately you started to hear people talk about well let's get rid of the housing projects um, where the poorest residents who are overwhelmingly african-americans lived Um, let's shut down the the public schools and replace them with charter schools Um, and so i covered that um, that phenomenon of what i call disaster capitalism or the shock doctrine um, for a long time and the way i understood it as it it was a collision between uh, heavy weather of the kind w- that we are seeing more and more of in the context of a warming planet and 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 that weather event colliding with a weak and neglected public sphere, which had been rendered weak and brittle by decades of neglect under neoliberalism and white supremacy and all of that just mixing together.
1: I think Naomi just really clearly saw that climate change was going to be a threat multiplier to capitalism, too, right? Like, yes, it'll make the hurricanes worse, and then it will also exacerbate every inequality.
2: hmm exactly. Yeah, she started to see climate change as inextricably linked to the excesses of capitalism and racial oppression. And these are the ideas that the Green New Deal tries to address together.
4: Climate change is not just an environmental issue it's not something that we can leave to a few big shiny green NGOs it is a human rights issue it's an economic justice issue it's a racial justice issue it's all of it and our current system will intensify all of this and make it worse Um, but on the other hand if we actually confront the Um, implications of this crisis and and really heed the message that it's sending us, we actually have a chance to build a much fairer economy. And so that's what sort of drew me in.
2: So did you have a wake-up call like this, Amy?
1: I feel like I had several over the years. Like I was uh, freelance writing for a bit after college and I was very broke and needed a job. And a friend of mine was like, uh, I'm working at this engineering firm. Do you want to write case studies for us? And I was like, no, but yes. <laughs> so in the course of, of doing that, I, uh, I wrote up a case study for this engineering firm that happened to be re-engineering oil platforms for Shell um, to sort of prepare for sea level rise. And I was like, wait a minute. Uh, As far as I know, they've been saying this isn't even happening. (laughs) Um, And then I definitely feel like, um, you know, it sounds like a cliche future generations thing. But Mm -hmm. when I had kids, I think was when I I think I most felt like. And this is probably very gendered and old-fashioned, but I felt like this sort of societal permission to be, like, righteously angry.
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and that was something that I I, – that is something that, you know, I have written and talked about a lot since then because I do feel like this sort of persistent uh, lecture from the climate movement about keeping emotions out of climate is so mm. – stupid (laughs) you know it's like well what the fuck else are you supposed to be angry about you know like there's a small group of powerful men mostly who like made decisions that have put us all on the fast track to extinction yeah you should get fucking angry about that (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah um and i want to finish up bill's story here because I think for him it was less a wake-up call to the nature of the problem since he'd been writing about it since um, the late 80s and more a call about the tactics that needed to be used. Like he said earlier that he thought just writing about it and just telling the truth um, was enough, and he realized eventually that that was not going to cut it.
3: When it became clear that we were in a fight, not an argument, um, well, that's when some of us decided that it would be necessary to really engage that fight to try and start building a movement that might have enough power to counterbalance the weight of the fossil fuel industry. What's been really fun is watching those things in turn give rise to the next round of activists.
2: So Bill ended up founding this climate activist organization, 350.org, and they actually helped Sunrise get off the ground back when they launched in 2017. Um, and that sort of takes us full circle back to that sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office in 2018, when suddenly the terms of the climate debate seemed to shift overnight.
4: What? happened when um, Sunrise started occupying offices and demonstrating after the midterm elections. And what happened in those midterm elections was the first time that I had really felt any kind of climate hope since Trump was elected. You know, I think there's something extraordinary going on globally with young people. I mean, I think Sunrise are part of a global movement and a global moment where young people are finding their fire, right? this action should be inspiring people of every generation to take direct action uh, and, and find, find our fire and our courage. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This, I, as again, as someone who, you know, was told for a really long time to, you know, not get quote unquote emotional about it. um, I, I think this is the thing that I find most heartening about where we're at today versus where we were, when I first started covering this stuff, because the climate movement is just more integrated and more human than the environmental movement kind of ever was. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't shy away from race or class or justice or gender, and it really doesn't shy away from how the climate crisis feels.
2: Yeah. And I think those things feed each other, like because sunrise um, and because the green new deal talk about big systemic solutions, about transforming society, about mm-hmm. addressing racism and inequality. Um, that's brought in people like Alex O'Keefe, we met back in episode two, who right. you know was not ready to sign up for the environmental movement. Um, right. and, and, and the youth climate movement's really letting those folks lead.
1: Yeah, it, yes, exactly. It just, it feels really, really different, which is what makes it feel like it might actually work this time.
2: It's good to hear you say that, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) On next week's episode of Generation Green New Deal, we're heading to the city of Detroit. Once the Motor City of America, and perhaps soon the engine of the Green New Deal. For the last 30 plus years, Detroit has been a victim of many of the forces we talked about in this episode. Globalization, deindustrialization, pollution, environmental racism. We'll talk to local activists and organizers there who've both fought against these effects and are inspired by the idea of a Green New Deal.
5: These places that I've just shown you and talked about with sacrifice zones for the rich.
2: And we'll hear from former Detroit health commissioner and host of the podcast, America Dissected, Abdul El-Sayed.
1: Right now we have an energy system that predicates our ability to light our spaces and uh, to drive our cars on taking stuff out of the ground and then burning it into the lungs of our children.
2: We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. You can follow us for more on Twitter and Instagram at Generation GND We're on Facebook as Generation Green New Deal. And you can find links to all this, subscribe to our newsletter, watch a companion video to this episode, and even see a preview of the documentary this podcast is based on at GenerationGreenNewDeal.com. Generation Green New Deal is produced by Takuna Alam Productions and distributed by Critical Frequency. I'm your host, Sam Eilertson, and thanks so much to Amy Westervelt for co-hosting this episode with me. Go check out Amy's podcasts, Drilled and Hot Take, wherever you get your podcasts. Nate Birnbaum and I created this show, and we produced this episode with Michael Catano. Our executive producers are Amy Westervelt and Eric Axelman. Our story consultant is Maggie Lemire. Nick Damons is our script consultant. Mariel Olentine produces our companion videos. Michael Catano is our editor and also our mix engineer. Polka Data is our impact producer. Alex Ostroff is our archival producer. Transcription by Shelby Lambert. Our artwork is created by Matthew Fleming, and our theme song is Which Side Are You On by B. Dolan. Special thanks to Teresa Preston Warner, Preston Warner Ventures, the Topel Family Foundation, and the Solberga Foundation. Thanks for listening.